Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today we're checking in with Wyoming race writer Craig Johnson. He's the New York Times bestselling author of the Walt Longmire mystery novels, which are the basis for Longmire, the Netflix series. His latest novel in the Longmire series is Helen Back. In this 18th installment of the series, uh, Craig Johnson takes the beloved sheriff to the very limits of his sanity to do battle with the most dangerous adversary Walt Longmire has ever faced himself. Craig Johnson's author is a recipient of many awards for his books, and uh, he lives in Ucross, Wyoming, population 25. Pleasure to welcome you back to the program. Good to be here, Tom. I've got some exciting news. We're, we've gone up to 26 here in Ucross. 26? So 26. We're having a population boom, as it were. <laughs> <laughs> we're good. We'll, we'll have to, by the way, we'll have to update uh, Wikipedia. They still have it at 25. Yeah. Um, I, I do, uh, you know, I do, uh, do learn a little bit more about Ucross every time I uh, prepare to speak with you. I went yeah. to w- Wikipedia, which of course is the the fount of all knowledge, and um, <laughs> I found uh, I'm quoting from Wikipedia: Ucross is part of the so-called UCLA of Wyoming, Ucross, Claremont, Leiter, and Arveda. <laughs> That's right. That's we- right. And if you combine all those towns together, you might have about a population of approximately 300. <laughs> um, but yeah, we're still it, everybody's a buzz here in Ucross trying to figure out where that extra person came from because uh, <laughs> nobody had a baby, nobody yeah. moved in. We're still trying to figure it out. I, I think what it is is just that you know the. The state of Wyoming has figured out if they have an uptick, you know, with their population in enough towns, they can get more federal money. And so I think after 40 years, they decided that Ucross could deserve, like, one more person. So we're, we're now holding at 26. Very good. Maybe add one person to each of those small towns. You'll, you'll get somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you don't want to draw too much attention to yourself, but just enough, you know. <laughs> That's right. Uh, I, was, I looked up Longmire Days, which was in August, right? August every it year. It was. It was. Um, it's what I tend to refer to as a FEMA disaster here in Buffalo, yeah. Wyoming. And, and the reason I do that is the very first year that we did it, um, we invite you know all the actors from the TV show like that, and I'm there like that, and uh, you know it's 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 uh, all of them plus about twenty thousand of their closest friends like that, which kind of overloads uh, Buffalo, the little town that's the model for Durant uh, and Absaroka County uh, in the books and in the television show. And uh, the first year that we did it, um, the grocery stores and the you know the restaurants all ran out of food, the ATM machines and the banks all ran out of money. And then the one little cell phone tower that we have there in Buffalo, you know, practically melted down with the twenty thousand extra um, cell phones that were suddenly in service there. Like that. so, it's uh, we've done a lot better, you know, since we first started out about twelve years ago. Look at, but uh, it's still uh, an exciting and uh, kind of a magical weekend here in Buffalo. Yeah, it looks like it's fun. Uh, there's some pictures here of a, of a horseback ride. You you know, you go riding with. Uh... With you and uh, Robert Taylor, apparently uh, there's a run. There's there's a lot of stuff. I was interested by um, a, a talk you gave about the hardware of Longmire, talking about cars and <laughs> sidearms of the books and television series. That that was interesting. Like we actually had an expert come over from uh, the Buffalo Bill Museum over in Cody, like that, where they actually have a display of the weapons, you know, of Longmire. And uh, yeah, it, it's 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 been kind of interesting to see, you know, just how seriously people take, you know, the sheriff and uh, all of these things like that. Yeah, you know, we we have all kinds of events like that. We also have a uh, Indians versus Cowboys um, softball game where the Indians generally come down like out of the softball teams in Montana and just just thrash. Uh, the cowboy team on a regular basis um but you know it's pretty exciting we have street dances like that we have you know panels with all of the actors and uh, i do a book event and uh, all kinds of stuff like it's actually you know kind of a wonderful event to have every year 
One more thing, I think I mentioned this to you last time we talked, uh, Wikipedia once more, under UCross, of course, most towns, they have a list of notable people. You are the notable person in, uh, in UCross. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tom, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to bang my own drum, but yeah, here in our town of twenty-five, I'm, a, I'm kind of a big deal. Yeah, I, I have to admit. Like you, I, so. <laughs> no, I'm a, you would never do this, but I imagine you could throw your weight around. You could say, "I'm the notable person." You know, you know, you, you know, with great power comes great responsibility, and I think you know you need to be careful in those kind of situations. <laughs> but, but yeah, with some of my ranching buddies, like they've actually gotten to the point where uh, um, they they finally asked me. They said there are enough people that you know come up and you know they'll see us out working and they'll flag us down and we'll come over to the fence and they'll say we're looking for the house of Craig Johnson. Do you know where he lives? You know, do you want us to tell them? Or, and I'm always telling them, look, if they make it all the way to Ucross, you cross, you go ahead and tell them where I live, and they, they can come up the driveway. It's no problem and knock on the door. Generally, what I do is I give them a, a can of Rainier beer and sign it for them like that so that they can take that home. Oh, that's, yeah, it. yeah. Nice souvenir. It's usually nice souvenir, a little yeah. embarrassing, though, like that, because a lot of times they're, they're, they're foreign readers. Like, at the books are translated in about 27 countries, like it, and so I'll get foreign readers, and every once in a while I'll get, you know, a message from, you know, one of these, you know, like really, you know, beer-rich countries, you know, like Germany or Poland, you know, or Czech Republic or one of these, and they'll write, and they say, yeah, I'm so excited about finally coming to America, and we are going to be able to have a Rainier beer. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, don't get too carried away with that, okay? <laughs> don't get too worked up. It's a beer. You know, and it's good like that, but uh, you know, don't 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 stretch it too far there. <laughs> so if you make it to Ucross, you'll 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 receive the person, I guess. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Like I mean, my goodness, like that's one of the joys of what it is that I do in the time period in which I do it. I mean, I'm always reading about all the authors that you know never really got a chance to meet. You know, all of the people that read their books and. Um, you know, with the pandemic and everything, you know, the the touring kind of got curtailed. Like, and uh, it was interesting to me because I, I I missed it far more than I thought that I would. I mean, I thought I would miss it, but I didn't think I would miss it quite to the extent um, that I have. Like, and so being back out on the road, you know, for Helen back, you know, with a twenty three city tour like that, that was actually a blast. I had a really really good time, and it was nice to get back in touch with readers like that, and you know, and hear what they had to say, and shake their hands, and sign their books, and you know, and uh, personalize them, which is always you know the the wonderful thing that comes along with an in person event. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned uh, you know you'll you'll get visitors from Europe. You're, I think you're especially big in France. Why do why do you think that is? I have no idea other than to say that it's the mechanics of the thing like that. I mean, the more um, the more languages that I'm translated into, the more I've come to the conclusion that you know if you get a good translator, you get a good you know product, you get a good book, and if you get a bad translation, you get a bad book. Like that. and I'm extraordinarily fortunate that I've got a an amazing translator, Sophie Asselineda, is there in uh, France, and also a really uh, magnificent French publisher like that, and uh, they really you know, go to a great extent, you know, to try and make sure that you know the French readers are getting exactly the same tone and feel and timber as you know the books are in English. Um, and from what I've understood, like that, a lot of the the response tends to come from the characters themselves. I mean, you know, the, the French are pretty sharp readers, like it, and so you know they, they they feel like an awful lot of the westerns that they read are a little hyperbolic or not particularly honest, you know, or true, you know, to the area, like that. And uh, so when they read the Longmire books, like that, with the sense of humor and you know and a lot more you know, detail and all of that, you know, and especially with them being contemporary westerns, they're feeling like they're getting you know the real deal, like that, which is is very flattering, to be honest. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, this summer, I was I was in Wyoming, it, you know, a little trip across, and I I was struck by uh, you know little towns like Muddy Gap and Farson. That's the area I was I was in. Uh, little you know, very very small towns. Um, you know, spread out. You've said that there's a video on your website, um, a short video. You say several things. Um, so Wyoming, in Wyoming, people choose to be there. So what is it about Wyoming? that, And you chose to be there, right? Oh, I think that, you know, to a certain extent, you know, I mean, a certain amount of solitude and isolation for some of us is, you know, kind of uh, essential, you know, especially like to the process of what it is that I do. I mean, I, you know, I, if I lived in a place like I was just in Salt Lake City, like there was so much going on, you know, I just glanced through the papers to see what was going on, you know, that particular weekend, I would be utterly distracted on a regular basis. Like it would be really kind of difficult for me. I was in Los Angeles. I was in a lot of different cities and a lot of different places like that during that tour. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, just the, the, the quiet and the isolation, you know, of, of being, you know, in U-Cross is kind of handy as far as that kind of thing is concerned. I mean, whenever I first started the, with the idea of writing the books, you know, I mean, that was like 20-some years ago. And at that point in time, everything in crime fiction was pretty much, you know, noir. It was very, you know, gritty, dirty, you know, alcoholic detectives, you know, and, uh, you know, a lot in big urban areas and all this. And I thought, okay, well, what if you did, you know, the sheriff of the least populated county and the least populated state in America, maybe that would be, you know, something a little bit different. Look, at, of course, the thing that I didn't take into consideration was how many people can you kill in, you know, the least populated <laughs> county. And I have a lot of people who come up to me and say, boy, you know, Absaroka County is a pretty dangerous place. And uh, I always remind them, well, now you're talking about the TV show. You're not talking about the books, because I, I decided early on that what I needed to do was treat Walt almost as if he were a... Uh, like a ball team, I would do him home and away, like that I would have uh, something happen in Absaroka County, but then I would have him, you know, also his reputation would precede him, and he would be taken out of Absaroka County, you know, and go up into Montana and South Dakota and a lot of different places. Heck, the, the third book in the series takes place in Philadelphia, like that. So it's kind of fun to, you know, to kind of have that ability to move him around a little bit. <laughs> Um, I, I love the romance in your story. You, you, I, I think you had encountered the Bighorn Country before, right? But, but tell me again about the decision to. Uh, I'm going to go. I'm going to go out and live there. You know, I, I actually was delivering horses down out of Montana like that, and I just fell in love with the area like that. And uh, there was a rancher I was working for, and I was delivering horses down here like that. And I was supposed to meet a guy coming up from Oklahoma, and the reason they had chosen U-Cross was because we have a public corral. Now we don't have a payphone, but we have a public corral, which is kind of <laughs> indicative of you know the UCLA area. And uh, anyway, I got down here, and the guy wasn't here like that. And so I went over to the bar and borrowed their phone, called him back, and said, "Hey, he's not here yet. What do you want me to do?" And he goes, well, don't worry about it. He'll be along any time now. He hasn't left yet. And I was, I knew that he was coming from Oklahoma City. And I was like, he hasn't left from Oklahoma City. And he goes, yeah, he'll be along in a couple of days. And I said, well, what do you want me to do? Like, and he said, well, just unload the horses there in the public corral and just buck it up, you know, from Clear Creek. Like, and this is bailing season. You can go get a couple of bales, you know, for the horses, some of those idiot bales, 75-pounders. Like, and, you know, the horses will be fine. You know, and I said, well, that's all right for the horses, but what about me? And he said, well, it's bailing season, Craig. I'm sure there are plenty of people down there that need help, you know, throwing those small bales. Like that. So I spent about three days, you know, throwing small bales, you know, for the local ranchers. Like that. I never bought a meal. I never bought a beer. You know, uh, I was well taken care of, and I slept up on top of the horse trailer with a saddle for a pillow and just fell in love with the area. I mean, it's right here where Piney and Clear Creeks run in together, and you can look up and see the Bighorn Mountains, you know, about 13,000 feet with snow on them. 
you know, all summer long, look at those you know, great big aspen trees, look at, you know, and great big cottonwoods, and they were just turning gold at that point in time. And so I just fell in love. I fell in love with the place and thought if I ever get the chance to build a ranch, this is, this is where it is that I want, want it to be. How did you find Walt Longmire? Did you have you had an idea you wanted to do a, a you know crime right? But but how did you how did you find Walt? You know, I, I think he kind of went against the grain a little bit, like that, because as I was saying, like you know, a lot of times it was like alcoholic, you know, abusive, uh, you know, uh, detectives hiding bodies in their backyards. You know, at the point in time when I got started, and I just I knew you know. That that the majority of people that are in law enforcement, they make a lot of sacrifices and do an awful lot of things like that to to do what it is that they do, you know, for, you know, the 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 citizenry as a whole. Like that, and I thought, you know, well, maybe I'll put the components together to make the guy that I think is just, you know, the perfect law enforcement official. I mean, Walt, you know, intelligent. Like that, he cares about the people that are in his county. I mean, when I was doing ride-alongs, um, and still do, like that, you know, here in Wyoming and up in Montana, the the the, the phrase that I kept hearing from all of these sheriffs was my people, my people, my people. And I think that with sheriffs, there's a certain connection, you know, with the community that maybe doesn't exist quite so much with a lot of other forms of law enforcement in the sense that, you know, when people, you know, vote for you, you know, that that's really, they're giving you one of the most treasured things that they have, you know, is their, their vote. And so there's a connection there like that. And so then, you know, these same people that would never walk into a police office in their entire lives, like, a, you know, will certainly walk into a sheriff's office and go, hey, I voted for you, and I'm having trouble with such and such. I need your help on this. And so there's a connection there. I think that there's a uh, a community connection that I think was something that I was looking for uh, that would be something a little bit different than a lot of the stuff that was in crime fiction at that period in time. I'm going to reference this video, this short video on your website. By the way, uh, point people to uh, craigallenjohnson.com is the website. Uh, in there, you said, my job is to get out there and feel the things that mean something. And to do that, you got to go out and find those things. So how how do you do that? Well, I think, you know, you can't just sit behind the desk, you know, and sit there and imagine these things. I mean, in any, you know, rightful society, I mean, what I do for a living is I sit in a room and type about my imaginary friends. You guys should lock the door and never let us out is what you should do, like that, because, you know, we're not quite right. But uh, it's a joy, you know, to have that, that experience and to be able to create um, those worlds and with those characters. And, uh, you know, I'm always aware that uh, I, I kind of, like, wake up in Walt Longmire's world, you know, every morning, and I I breathe the air that he breathes. I see the thing that he things that he he sees. You know all of these things, and so. If I have the opportunity um, to go out, you know, and to drive the roads he drives, you know, and talk to the people he talks to, that's really kind of important. I had a wonderful conversation with the Office of Tourism down in Cheyenne. They came up and we had lunch, and they were telling me how much they loved the books. And I said, well, do you mind if I ask why? And they said, you use real places in your books. You use real roads. You use real trailheads. You use all of these things. Even though Absaroka County doesn't exist, if people go to a map, you know, of Wyoming, they can find every single thing that you talk about. The businesses that you know, there really is a, a busy bee cafe right there on the main street of Buffalo, which is the model for Durant. Um, and sometimes people ask me, they'll say, you know, why is it that you adhere? 
you know, to this this real world, you know, so much so, and don't take as many literary licenses as, say, maybe a lot of other authors do. And it's pretty easy for me to, I can just tell them, you know, well, it's a lot easier to remember the real world than to, to try and, you know, keep track of some fictitious world that I've come up with. And it's also a little bit more of a challenge, you know, to actually use, you know, the distances, the space, you know, the the, the, the geography, like that, and the topography of, you know, where it is that I live, like that, and actually use that in the book so that it all kind of makes sense. Um, and it's a joy. Like, it's a joy for the people that, you know, live here in our area, in the contemporary Rocky Mountain West, and, and even for those people that, you know, come up my driveway in the minivans that they rented out of Denver. That's, it's kind of fun for them to be able to track it all down. Mm-hmm. Uh, one more thing, we'll take a break, and when we come back, I wanted to get, jump into Helen back. But um, I was reading a, another interview you gave. You talked about being on a panel in France and uh, with other writers and talking about uh, technology, Especially the the other writers were saying, well, the the cell phone is so is so troublesome, and it, it it ruins our writing, and so they're sending their books back before the cell phone, right? But but you said, hey, there are ways you can work around that. Yeah. I actually did. Boy, Tom, you don't miss much. I tell you, like, I, yeah, I, I was, you know, for me, it was, uh, they were all talking about, you know, taking their characters back to the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and all this so that they could escape technology. And my response to that was, you should just write in Wyoming because we don't have the majority of that stuff. I'm always amazed, you know, whenever, you know, people, you know, don't, don't understand that, that there are limits to technology. I mean, you know, that's one of the great things about the American West is, is the, the vastness of it, the size of it like that and the fact that it can really put you in your place no, no matter how technologically advanced we may consider ourselves to be um, nature has a way of, of responding and telling you you know yeah you need to sit back just a little bit there and uh, you know whenever the cell phones don't work you know during Longmire days I'm always walking up to people yeah well now you know why Walt doesn't carry a cell phone don't you <laughs> other than just taking selfies with the antelope and the buffalo which is a dangerous proposition don't do it um, they, they really kind of become useless when there isn't any service for them like that and uh, the same thing goes with Wi-Fi and computers. Like that, I had a book that came out here just a couple of years ago, Land of Wolves. Like that, where they accidentally ordered up, you know, requisitioned a computer for Walt. Like that, and the whole staff, you know, was trying to help him, you know, learn how to do simple things like send an email. And finally, by the time he got to the end of the book, everybody decided it was more trouble teaching him how to do this than it was to just do it themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, which actually does happen with some Wyoming sheriffs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I wasn't bending the rules very much on that one. <laughs> Let's take a break. We're talking with uh, Wyoming-based writer Craig Johnson. He's the New York Times bestselling author of the Walt Longmire series. The latest is Helen Beck, and after break, we'll uh, talk about uh, the latest book. We'll have more following this. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Craig Johnson, New York Times bestselling author of the Walt Longmire mystery novels. And um, we are going to jump into talking about the latest one. Uh, it's called Helen Back. And uh, Craig Johnson, I just want to read this uh, paragraph, this setup here. Um, what if you woke up lying in the middle of the street in the infamous town of Fort Pratt, Montana, where 30 young native boys perished in a tragic 1896 boarding school fire? What if every person you encountered in that endless night was dead? 
What if you were covered in blood and missing a bullet from the gun holstered on your hip? And what if there was something out there in the yellowed skies, along with the deceased and smell of ash and dust, something the Northern Cheyenne referred to as the wandering without the taker of souls? And what if the only way you know who you are is because your name is printed in the leather sweatband of your cowboy hat? And what if it says your name is Walt Longmire, but you don't remember him? So that's uh, that's pretty intriguing. Uh, this, is, uh, this, this is maybe the, the, the first time uh, that Walt has uh, lost his identity, right? Yeah, it is. Look at uh, after 18 years, look at he's suddenly uh, kind of unmoored um, in this situation. Like this is a little bit of a continuation of the previous story, uh, which was Daughter of the Morning Star, which, which dealt with uh, murdered missing Indigenous women's uh, situation. Like that, it's kind of a scourge that's going on in Indian country right now. And uh, I remember when I took the statistics here from the Department of Justice, like at the Viking Penguin, and said, I think this is the book that I'm going to work on. Like at they they looked at me and they said, there, there's something wrong here. There's no way that these statistics could be correct. There can't be this many missing and murdered indigenous women, you know, across the U.S. And I'm like, yeah, it's actually true. It actually is what's happening. Like, and this was like four or five years ago. And um, with Daughter of the Morning Star, it's got a beginning, a middle, and an end. And we actually find out, you know, what it is that's happening. But there just seems to be an undercurrent a subtext of uh, mysticism and spirituality like that, that is not uncommon in Indian country. Like that, And uh, Walt finds himself in a situation where he needs to find out about this town that's up in Montana, this, uh, this, this town named Fort Pratt for Richard Henry Pratt, who was the uh, prognosticator of uh, the boarding school uh, system like that, that ran from 1819 to 1969, actually, like at these boarding schools. Like that, and we're just starting to hear, you know, a lot of um, the horrors, you know, from these boarding schools and the mass graves of children, um, you know, not only up in Canada, but also here in the United States. And uh, I, I think his heart, you know, was in the right place. But, you know, the idea of these boarding schools where you would literally, you know, take these children, you know, from, you know, their native families like that and literally, you know, pick them up and take them halfway across the country and drop them into these schools um, where their heads were shaved, like they were given these military uniforms and forbidden to speak their language or anything of their their you know, relatives or, or their culture or their society or anything. You know, it was kind of horrific. And we're just now starting to see the, the tip of the iceberg in what it was that happened, a kind of a cultural genocide in many ways. He was famous for the phrase, kill the Indian to save the man, and he also coined the phrase racism. Uh, which hadn't existed until he came up with it. But uh, there is this town, Fort Pratt, Montana, that uh, houses the Fort Pratt uh, Industrial Indian Boarding School. Look at that, and Walt keeps hearing about it all the way through Daughter of the Morning Star. And every time he asks someone, he says, well, where exactly is Fort Pratt? People go, oh, it's up near, um, uh, it's beside, um, and no one seems to know exactly where this town is. Um, and so when the book opens, like at Walt is waking up out in the middle of a snow-covered street in a place he doesn't recognize, like it, and uh, <clears throat> one of the things he has to do is discover, you know, A, who he is, B, why he is there, before he can even go any further in this investigation that's actually brought him to Fort Pratt. And, uh, you know, there, there are a lot of things that are a little bit strange right from the get-go. When he wakes up in the street, he's got silver dollars over his eyes. Well, those of us who are, you know, well, cognizant of like the mythology, uh, know that uh, to get across the river sticks, you have to pay the, uh, the, the the ferryman, you know, two dollars, like that, to be able to get into Hades, like it. And uh, also in the old west, you know, the mythology of that is is that 
before they had you know the uh, the technology like at wherewithal to be able to close your eyes after you had died one of the ways that they kept your eyelids from popping open was to put coins over your eyes in the old west like and the first thing that Walt meets when he you know rears up off the ground like that is a an owl um who is uh, sitting on top of the the archway you know to the boarding school and with the northern cheyenne their belief is, is that the owl is a messenger from the camp of the dead to the camp of the living and then as he makes his way through this night, like and he keeps running into people that he, he thinks he knows like that, but he's pretty sure are dead. And so the question becomes, you know, well, where is Walt? And is it possible that uh, he's met his demise like it, and is just going through the motions at this point in time? So um, that's where we find the good sheriff. Like that. And I, I don't want to give away too much, like that, but a lot of it has to do with a, a Cheyenne legend of the Eboetse Heomese, like that, which I heard from my good friend Charles Whiteman, like it, who was a tribal elder like that and uh i was sitting on his porch one evening like that and uh his grandkids were out playing past the corral like that and over in the tree line going in and out of the darkness there and uh he yelled at them to come back over to the house and he used a phrase like that and uh the kids heard that noise and they came running back like that and i asked him like that i said you know my northern cheyenne is at least workable like that and i asked him i said you know okay i didn't understand that last phrase that you used the evoetse and he goes oh that's just a that's just a boogeyman that we use like that if the kids get out too far you tell them the evoetse heomese is going to get them like that and it'll chase them back in here where they're you know where you can see where they are and what they're doing and so i thought that was interesting like that and went out like that uh, after meeting with charles again and, and looked it up like that. i dug out my my grinnell bird uh uh, Cheyenne dictionary and half the words in it are incorrect like that but I dug it out like I started looking through it and got the literal translation and the literal translation was the wandering without and I found that incredibly poetic and frightening at the same time like that and so I think it was like about a month or so later I ran into Charles again and I said hey Charles I just wanted to ask you look at that you know that that phrase that you use the evoetse heomese um I was just wondering do you have any idea where it is that 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 phrase or that that legend might have come from and he goes you know since we met I have been giving that some thought look at and he says cuz I knew you were going to ask me when I saw you <laughs> next time and I said well I'd really be interested in anything that you've got and he said well he says you know he says that phrase has been around for a very very long time look at and he says I remember my great-grandfather using that phrase. And he says, so I know it's been around for a couple of hundred years. It's possible it's been around for thousands. And uh, he said, you know, I have a theory on that. Like, and I said, well, what is it? Look, and he said, well, you have to remember that, you know, our people, he said, the human beings, like, we, you know, we didn't, back in the day, we didn't have prisons and we didn't have police forces or anything like that. If somebody did something or someone was deemed, you know, too dangerous or, you know, too, too bad to be able to stay around within the company of the human beings, what we would do is we would banish them. Them. And he said, you have to remember at this period in time, that long ago, look at that a banishment basically was a death sentence is what it was. You, you were basically condemning that person to death. And he said, I couldn't help but think that all of those lost souls, all those confused, dangerous souls were out there floating around and combined all together to make up this creature, the Evoetse Heomese, that hungered for human companionship. And I thought, well, that just sounds like a, a, a worthy adversary for the good sheriff. And I, that's where Walt Longmire ends up in Fort Pratt and Helen back. Yeah, that's uh, that's uh, that's amazing. Um, you know, supernatural, uh, you know, strong theme throughout uh, throughout the book, including what you just talked about. Well, that's um, 
Yeah, that's a, that's something of a departure. I mean, you you've had had <laughs> supernatural, but 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 the amount of it in the, this book, I guess uh, that's that's a challenge. Good to have a challenge, right? Oh, it is. Like, and I think also, look, I mean, I'm fortunate enough to be, you know, with a, a a literary press, Viking Penguin, and they give me a lot of leeway, you know, to do whatever it is I want to do. I mean, the contracts that I have with them basically say it must be a mystery and have Walt Longmire in it. Well, that gives me a lot of leeway to get into a lot of trouble like that. And and the other group that I have to thank, like, uh, you know, for allowing me that kind of literary license and that kind of freedom are the readers that I have. I think they're just a little bit, you know, ahead maybe of the curve of, of the people that buy their books in the airports and in the grocery Stores. I mean, they tend to be just a little bit uh, more open, you know, to the idea that things are going to be a little bit different. I mean, a long time ago, whenever I first wrote The Cold Dish, you know, the very first Walt Longmire book, you know, I, I was concerned about writing a series of books because I really didn't want to go into a formula um, or start repeating myself. I mean, we've all started series of books that start out like gangbusters, and then you get about seven or eight books in, and they start repeating themselves, or they seem remarkably alike. The characters aren't really growing. There isn't anything really happening. They're just going through the motions like that and the statement that i've made is, is i don't ever want to write a book where walt is on a cruise ship and i don't ever <laughs> want to write a book where walt is you know chasing al-qaeda in crook county i mean i always want to be able to take some chances and do something a little bit different and uh, after 18 books you know this was one of those books that uh, kind of stretched the envelope a little bit and so i'm i'm, I'm very proud of it to be honest <laughs> Well, we have a test then. If we ever see Walt on a cruise ship, we'll know it's 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 the, the end. <laughs> it's all I guess over. it's all over. Yeah, <laughs> that that'll be the way we know it. Uh, you you I was reading another interview. You you said uh, Tony Hillerman once told you um, you got to play him one at a time. Uh, you you were you were referring to that. You, you write a series. You know the same characters. Keep it fresh, right? To take it in new directions mm-hmm. and and you know one at a time. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, whenever you're writing a series of books, you have two responsibilities. One is that, you know, each one should be able to stand on its own and be an interesting component unto itself. But then again, you know, you're also writing, you know, if you're lucky, like, you know, 30, 40 books. Like, and it all has to be kind of a combined tapestry, you know, where the threads all kind of intertwine and connect, you know. And, uh, you know, in Helen Back, when it starts out, Walt is lying there frozen to the ground like that because, you know, the sheepskin coat that he's wearing. Um, has frozen like he's been laying out there that long like well we haven't seen Walt in that sheepskin coat and since you know the cold dish you know the very first Walt Longmire 17 books ago and so I think that there have to be threads you know that connect all of these different things because I mean the most wonderful thing that ever happens I love it whenever I hear it and people come up to me like that and then say I've reread all your books I go I go back to the beginning and reread them like that and then then I read the new book um, that's just one of the most spectacular things you can ever say to an author, like that, because you know an, an awful lot of the time the response you get is is like, yeah, I read your new book. When's the next one? Which is flattering in itself, like that, because I mean, you know, somebody cares enough, like that, to you know, be that hungry for what it is that you're doing, like that. But um, at, at that point, you you start feeling a little bit like popcorn, you know. And so, <laughs> you know, for me, one of the great joys is, is that somebody actually goes back and then rereads um, your books. I like to put a lot of layers, you know, in the books and a lot of different things in the books. I kind of tend to refer to my writing style as kind of a crow kind of writing style in the sense that I you know, like to fly out there among all the different genres like that, and then pick up what I think is shiny and bring it back to the nest and, and put it into whatever novel it is that I happen to be working on at that point in time. Uh, you you have obviously have uh, Indian characters in your books. You have Indian friends that you talk about. Um, you and, and this... This book especially has, uh, you know, some uh, 
Indian supernatural elements. Do you do you worry about cultural appropriation? Do you you you, do you get feedback from your Indian friends on that? I do like that, and uh, yeah, I mean, you know, that these are my neighbors, my friends, you know, family practically like that, and so you know, it's kind of essential that they be a part of what it is that I write. Now, the character that I write, you know, is not native like that, but he obviously moves um, in the native world like that, and so for me to not include them in the books, you know, would be in a sense, you know, to coin the phrase criminal like that. Um, they are such an essential part of what it is that I do. I think that you know, I, it would be horrible. For me to not include them. Um, the responses that I get are obviously you know, very, very positive, like to not only the novels, but even the TV show. And, you know, to me, that, that, that's where the, you know, the most important aspect of it lies. I, I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I can see the reasoning, you know, behind the idea of cultural appropriation, but I also see that there are limitations to it. And I think probably the best way that I've heard that phrase was, you know, actually when uh, Steinbeck did his Nobel, you know, Prize for Literature acceptance speech, like he talked about how that, you know, good literature approaches a universality of the human condition. And in that sense, you know, we're all trying to understand each other and try and know each other. And that's what good literature is all about. I mean, you know, when you start pigeonholing everybody and saying, okay, you know, you, whites can't write about natives, natives can't write about whites, like women can't write about men, men can't write about women, nobody can write about horses, it gets kind of stupid really quick. Like it, and it kind of works against the idea of that universality and understanding that I think is, you know, any good art form. Are your books read on, uh, you know, the Cheyenne Crow reservations? Yeah, they are. Yeah, they absolutely are. It's it's funny like that because the you know the the only negative feedback I've ever gotten in the books was is that you know well I mean one of my favorite quotes is the one from Wallace Stegner on writing and teaching fiction where he says the greatest you know piece of fiction ever written is the disclaimer at the beginning of every book that says nobody in this book is based off anybody alive or dead, and of course the difficulty with that is is that I live in a state that only has a half a million people in it. You know, well then you've got the Northern Cheyenne Reservation only has five thousand enrolled members. Like it. And so whenever I use anybody, you know, in the books, they all know who it is that I'm talking about. Well, when I first started out, you know, I would change everybody's names like that because I thought that's what you did. Like that. And so now the only difficulty I have is that there are a lot of people that I put in the books and change their names, and they are kind of angry at me for changing their names like that because they want to buy copies of the books and give them to all their friends and show them how famous they are. <laughs> so um, that was a little bit of a difficulty, like it, uh, but, but they, they've let that slide. Like it. And then there was another one where I was doing a writer's workshop in uh, Lodge Grass, like at on the high school on the Crow Reservation, and there was a young man, I got to the Q&A part, and he says, I've got a question for you. And I said, sure, look at him. And he said, well, why would you have a character like Henry Standing Bear, you know, who exemplifies all these incredible traits of the courage and the intelligence and all of this of, you know, the Crow tribe, and then turn around and make him Northern Cheyenne? And I was like, yeah, I'm not going to get into that. <laughs> so <laughs> sometimes that that, uh, that competition between the tribes is still very strong. Mm-hmm. Well, let's take another break. We'll come back. Uh, we'll have more uh, talk about Helen Back and other things with Craig Johnson, New York Times bestselling author of the Longmire series. We'll have more following this. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Craig Johnson, New York Times bestselling author of the Walt Longmire mystery novels, which are the basis for Longmire, the Netflix series. Latest novel in the series is uh, Helen Back. It's the 18th installment uh, in this series. Talking about that with uh, Craig Johnson. His website, by the way, CraigAllenJohnson.com. 
So, uh, Craig Johnson, you've said that uh, one of the things you set out to answer in, in this novel was a question, um, what do you fear most? And so what, what is that for you, and what, what is that for Walt Longmar? Oh, I think we all, like, you know, have a lot of the same, you know, primal fears, like, that come from, you know, a situation where you might not know, you know, certainly, like, forgetting who you are and what you are. And, I mean, that's kind of a lifelong process, like, to discover, you know, who exactly you are, like that. And when you're someone like Walt, who... um who really, you know, responds to, you know, the sense of empirical data. I mean, and, you know, he's a detective, like, so it's all about the facts, nothing but the facts. And so he's not open to the idea of spirituality and mysticism and all those type of things, even though in the 17 books um, that, that mysticism and spirituality hasn't left him alone. Um, it makes for a difficult situation, you know, when he doesn't have that grounding um, in which to do his job. I mean, he really doesn't know who he is, where he is, why he is, any of these things. The only thing that he has going for him is that moral compass that he has, that sense of right and wrong, um, which is kind of the, the North Star um, for this character, I believe. Um, he's always going to be able to discern, you know, what is the right thing and then try and figure out what it is that he needs to do to accomplish that. And even, you know, in a, a situation where, you know, there don't seem to be any boundaries and he's not quite sure what's going on or why, um, he, he finds a way, like, he finds a way to do the right thing. Like that, and uh, that's, that's the hope, I think, you know, whenever you find yourself in those situations, is that, it, you know, even if, you know, you, you don't quite know, you know, you're going to hopefully do the right thing. That's a very interesting exercise. Of course, you spend a lot of time with that, uh, you know, Walt loses his identity to himself, right? He loses a sense of who he is, but he's still himself, and he still still holds that. It's, it's that, I guess, that rediscovery and, and discovering what's essential about, about Walt. What, I don't know, what did, what did you learn from that, do you think? Oh, I think, you know, that this was, it was interesting, like, it was an interesting book to write, like, that just simply because, you know, with Walt not knowing who he was or where he was or what he was, there really wasn't any reference point for me as far as, like, being able to go back and have Walt, you know, make connections, you know, all the way through the book. Um, the readers actually have a little bit more of an advantage uh, in this book for the first time after 17 novels. I mean, one of the, 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 the requisites that you have um, in writing crime fiction is, is that you have to be fair. You have have to give out you know the clues the exact same way that you know you have to give the same clues that you give your protagonist you know to the reader like that so that they have a an equal opportunity to be able to try and you know figure these things out and know who done it like that and uh, with this book you know it was a little bit interesting because I mean Walt you know doesn't have you know his usual references to work with like that. and so every character that he meets like that um, if you're you know aware of the books like that, or if you've read any of the books or maybe even like watch the television show you recognize a lot of these characters and know. In, in many ways, you know, some of the, the reviews that the books, you know, gotten have been, they've described it as a, uh, a, a love letter, you know, to the readers, like that, which is true. Like that, I mean, they, they, they have this constant cavalcade of characters that are popping up, and they know who they are, but Walt doesn't know who they are. I mean, the first person that he runs into um, in this cafe, you know, when he finally gets up off the ground and walks down into this little town, there's a cafe that's open, and, you know, 
know, there's a woman inside working in the cafe, and Walt goes in, introduces himself, and she introduces herself, and her name is Martha. Like that, well, she bears a striking resemblance to everything that we've heard about Walt's wife, who died, you know, more than five years ago. And so, you know, we know a little bit more than Walt does. And uh, it was a blast, I have to admit, like, get to write the book, because it was also a little bit like a, a greatest hits album. I could go back and salvage up these characters that, you know, I certainly didn't think I was ever going to be able to write about again and uh, and put them in play once more, you know, with Walt. So you mentioned writing mysteries. There's a kind of a contract with the with the reader, right? You're you're gonna you're gonna withhold some things from them. You're gonna give just enough clues. You're gonna be fair. Uh, it puts me in mind of uh, I was reading a bit about Agatha Christie. That uh, so a couple of her <laughs> most famous books. Um, you know, people have said, well, fair, yes, but uh, you know, with an asterisk, kind of <laughs> concealing a little bit more. Well, than, that's true. Than, like than, I mean, you know, fair, you yeah. really and it changes. I mean, obviously, she was writing in a different period, like that, and uh, you know, and the the, the the you know the work changes a little bit, like that. You know, as as the you know, components of time you know take place, but uh, but yeah, I think that that's an important aspect to what it is that we do like at the you know one of the biggest i tend to refer to what i write as like socially responsible crime fiction in the sense that i'm not looking to just stack up bodies like cordwood just to keep you you know turning pages um you know i i'd much prefer like that you know it being uh, character driven pieces like that where you get into the depth um of the storylines and not just you know tricky plot devices like it to keep people like flipping through um you know and 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 you know one of the most important statements that you make in a whodunit is who did it and so so, you know, you have to be fair in those situations like that and give the reader an equal opportunity to try and figure out, you know, those things the same way that the protagonist is all the way through. And and this one is a little bit, you know, maybe it leans a little bit, you know, to the abilities of the reader, maybe away from Walt, um, because he, like, doesn't have his usual resources to work with. And, uh, you know, whenever, you know, the the other characters in the books, you know, Victoria Moretti, his second-in-command, his uh, undersheriff, like that, and Henry Standing Bear, like that, his good friend, like that, you know, they come looking for him like that. We find ourselves, there's some other segments of the book, you know, where Walt's not even there. And, and this is something new, too. Like that, I've, I've written the books in first person, you know, for the last 18 years or 17 years at least, like that. And uh, Walt's always been, you know, the, the view of the world, you know, for the reader. And suddenly in this book, there are some segments where he's not. And uh, that's been kind of interesting to do, too, I have to admit. So uh, what's number 19 going to give us any preview? <laughs> You know, Tom, you're sounding like one of those readers. Yeah, yeah what's next? <laughs> <That's> <laughs> right. Make you make feel like popcorn. Yes, I'm sorry um, about there's that. There's actually a, a, a really uh, wonderful story like that that I had heard. Like that, and nine times out of ten, that's generally where the the books come from is either newspaper articles like that or short stories that I've read like that. You know, nonfiction pieces like that because I do want Walt dealing with the things that the Western sheriffs deal with like that. But um, there's a sequence where Walt remembers, you know, a um, a story that his father told him, like in this one section of the Bighorn Mountains where he tells him about the first time he'd ever seen a, a man die. And uh, there was this individual, Bill Sutherland, who was the accountant, you know, for the state of Wyoming, like that, who after World War II came up, you know, and hunted on Walt's grandfather's um, elk camp, like that. And, you know, Walt's, you know, relationship with his, you know, his grandfather is a very rocky one. As we go back through the books, you can see that uh, they, they kind of went, you know, Head to head, you know, numerous times like that. But uh, this this man, Bill Sutherland, was actually killed. He was shot like that. He was shot with a weapon that nobody at the elk camp had. 
And so Walt is there, like that, and the dog is digging, you know, in this rock outcropping as Walt's having this reminiscence, and uh, he raises his head up, like that, and he has a leather strap in his mouth, and it could be a piece of horse tack or it could be a rifle sling. And so Walt reaches down into the rocks and pulls out a 300 H&H Magnum. Um, a weapon that was kind of a prototype in the late 1940s. Like it, and uh, as it turns out, this is the weapon that killed uh, Bill Sutherland. And there are no 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 markings, no numbers, no serial numbers or anything on this weapon. And so it's very difficult to track down who it was that was the actual owner of it. And I like to think of Walt as being one of the most ecumenical, you know, even-handed um, detectives on the face of the earth. I mean, he's a firm believer in innocent until proven guilty until he discovers that this weapon actually belonged to his grandfather, Lloyd Longmire. Yeah, that sounds uh, fascinating. Um, finally, just a couple minutes left. Um, I, I wonder, you know, take us back to, you know, you cross and your ranch and the ranches surrounding what what's happening there this time of year. <laughs> Well, it's a beautiful time of year. It's wonderful to be home, I have to admit, after being on the road uh, for the better part of September. like that, And then I've got a European tour coming up here uh, at the end of October like that. And so it's kind of nice, you know, to have the better part um, of October here at home like that when the the leaves are changing. And uh, we've already had snow, you know, up uh, about four inches up on the mountain. And uh, I've got a cabin up there that I like to get up there and, and get into as much as possible, which kind of slows down a little bit in the wintertime like that. But uh, it's always going to be about the books. Like it's always going to be about the books. Like it, and uh, I also have a, a short story um, that I need to get working on. Like that. That's uh, it's actually from a, an interesting little story that I read. Like that, and uh, I do a, a short story every year. Like that, and send it out to everybody that's on my uh, my post-it list, which is the newsletter that I send out from CraigAllenJohnson dot com. Like that, I had a short story that was in Cowboys and Indians magazine that won the uh, Tony Hillerman. Short story uh, competition like that, and after that, every year I would send it out every Christmas morning. So if people want to get on there and get on the list, I don't exactly overload your inbox with uh, maybe one email every couple of months like that. But uh, every Christmas morning, I send out a short story, and there was this wonderful story that I heard about Arturo uh, Paganini, uh, and it was uh, a situation where there was a shepherd in Wyoming like that who was uh, his two items that he had like at that uh, he used for um, to, to entertain himself. One was a radio, like that, and then the other one was his violin. And he wrote and told uh, the maestro, look at that he was having trouble because his violin was out of tune and wasn't quite sure what to do about it. And was there any way that uh, there at the Philharmonic in New York on their radio broadcast um, in the late 1940s could they play a perfect A? Um, so that he could tune his violin. And so the next week on their national broadcast, um, the maestro got on there and the orchestra played a perfect day. And uh, the, 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 the sheep shepherd was uh, finally able to retune his violin. like that. And so that's kind of the starting point um, for this year's Christmas story that I'm working on right now. Oh, that sounds great. Um, well, we've reached the end of our time here. Uh, Craig Johnson, uh, New York Times bestselling author of the Walt Longmire uh, mystery novels has uh, been with us. Uh, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Oh, all mine, Tom. Thank you so much. Thank you. And we'll go out as we do on Tuesdays with Richard Ratliff and Citizens Academy. Welcome to Session 9 of UPR Citizens Academy. My name is Richard Ratliff. I'm your host. We've had a request for a discussion of freedom on this segment. 
Of course, there is a lot that might be said about freedom, but with only a five-minute window, I will offer just a couple of ideas. First, if every relationship were perfect, we would need few laws and little government. There would be prosperity beyond belief and freedom throughout society that we can hardly imagine. Improve the relationships, increase the freedom. When I vote, I will be voting for that idea. Improve the relationships, increase the freedom. Think about it. Second, when I think of personal freedom, running comes to mind. When I was a kid, I liked to run. I ran everywhere. I would rather run than walk. I was not the fastest runner. I had never heard of a marathon. The longest race I knew about was a mile. I just liked to run. I might run to a neighbor's house or for miles just for fun. I didn't get particularly tired, and when I would run, I felt free. It was a feeling. It was a physical freedom. It was also mental, and now I would say spiritual. So you might imagine how I felt when I saw, which was for me, a moment of perfect personal freedom. I can recall and play it over in my mind with the same joy and awe I felt at the time. My wife and I were observing a short portion of the top of Utah Marathon a few years ago. We could see up the street about 200 to 300 yards where the runners would enter an intersection, turn toward us, pass closely by us and continue on another couple of hundred yards and down the street from where we were standing before continuing on out of sight. The lead runner and eventual winner entered the intersection with long, lean legs and relaxed arms moving in perfect, graceful, easy rhythm, back straight, head magnificently erect, level, his whole being gliding as if propelled and riding a wave of invisible energy, his feet hardly touching the ground. I was completely awestruck. There was freedom and joy in his movement that I understood could only be experienced with the same level of ability, expertise, and disciplined effort. I remember thinking, if only I could enjoy such freedom. Then came another thought. Such freedom is not free. He earned this rarefied experience at a price. No one runs like that just because they might want to. Individual freedom to excel requires personal sacrifice and great discipline. Now, step that idea up to the level of freedom in society. The model of freedom we claim for the United States works only if its citizens make the personal sacrifice and exercise the discipline required to make it work. Think of a traffic jam where everyone is shouting and honking and gesturing, demanding their personal freedom to go. But no one is going anywhere. Clearing a traffic jam requires patience, discipline, and direction so that everyone is free to go on their way. We're facing several serious political traffic jams right now involving freedom to own and bear firearms, to abort unwanted pregnancies, and to cross national boundaries either to change where we live or to invade and swallow the freedom of an entire nation. A politician must consider the welfare of society in general as well as the freedom and rights of each individual, and laws alone cannot govern an unruly people. A great society requires commitment, discipline, and genuine concern by the governed for the welfare of those around them. I've mentioned previously that a great society requires great relationships. Solutions to all these problems lie in the quality of relationships. 
realizing that the quality of relationships depends upon commitment to the welfare of others, personal discipline, and honoring the rules of healthy society. It sounds simple, doesn't it? Like I said, improve the relationships, increase the freedom. I believe it is possible. Yes, we may win our freedom on the battlefield. We earn our freedom by electing relationship-based leaders and living relationship-based lives. This is Richard Ratliff for Citizens Academy. I am a political relationist. You may be too. I hope so. Thank you for listening. Till next time.